I rolled out this morning and the kids had the morning news show on. Bryant Gumbel was talking about the fighting in Lebanon. Some senator was squawking about the bad economy. It's going to get worse to see. We need a change in policy. There's the local paper rolled up in a rubber band. One more sad story is one more than I could stand. How I once I'd love to see the headlines say, not much to print today because there's nothing bad to say. Because no one robbed a liquor store in the lower part of town. No one OD'd. Nobody burned a single building down. Nobody fired a shot in anger. Nobody had to die in vain. We sure could use a little good news today. I'll come home this evening. I bet the news is still the same. Someone takes a hostage. Someone steals a plane. How I'd like to hear the anchor men talk about a county fair, how we cleaned up the air, how everybody learned to care. Oh, tell me, there's nobody was assassinated in the whole darn world today. And in the streets of violence, all the children had to do was play. And everybody loves everybody in the good old USA. We sure could use a little good news today. How true that is. And how true it was in that ancient world when heaven exploded and God descended the stairway of heaven with a baby on his arms. And the angels shouted, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for unto you is born a Savior. How we could use a little good news today. And so if you've come this morning really wanting a little good news, I got the greatest news that's ever been proclaimed. In the face of a fatalism that is as deep as death, I have the best news that man has ever heard. And it's right here in this little text. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And there are three things that need to be said this morning about this proclamation of good news today. One has to do with the reason of the proclamation, and then the relation of the proclamation, and then its results. First of all, the reason of the proclamation. What we proclaim is why we proclaim. For there is something in the nature of the message itself that just demands that we share it. On another occasion, these same disciples said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. There's something in the nature of this message that just demands that it be told. You cannot keep it a secret. And it's the message of Jesus Christ, this one figure that has haunted the thinking and the conscience of mankind for 20 centuries. And he begins his message about Jesus at the Incarnation. That's where it ought to begin. A number of years ago, as I traveled out into the Northwest, we crossed the Continental Divide. 
It's kind of awesome to know that you stand here and little raindrops will join little rivulets and streams that will head east to the, to the Gulf and the Atlantic. And, and just a little way over here, a few yards, raindrops fall and make little rivulets and streams that head west to the Pacific. It's kind of awesome to know that you're standing at the watershed of all the streams and rivers of the, war, of the, of the United States or the North American continent. Incomparably, the most important watershed in the long history of mankind is the incarnation of Christ. There is where all the streams divide. For after this one great event, the movement and the direction of mankind changed. For that one lone figure split history in two. And after that, everything is dated with, re re with reference to His coming, either before or after. And the text declares that the living God, immortal, invisible, eternal God, broke into history in an unprecedented way. And in the historical life of Jesus Christ, God declared His final revelation to man. In Jesus, God has come. Now, who is this Jesus? That was a question that was on the lips of every man in his day. When he healed the paralytic man, the Pharisees said, Who is this man who forgives sin? And when he calmed the wind and the waves, his disciples asked, Who is this that even the, the elements obey him? And when he brought pardon to the local prostitute, men asked, Who is this man, Jesus? And when he made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem... The record says that all the city was astir and everyone was asking, Who is this Jesus? Who is this man, Jesus? Well, they tell us that he was just a carpenter who lived in an obscure village called Nazareth, born in a manger, which is really just a lean-to beside the village inn. Wealth and honor were not his, and all of his friends were as poor as himself, peasants and fishermen. He wrote no books and he fought no battles and the applause of the listening senate was not his to command. And when he left home to begin to preach at the age of 30, his family tried to dissuade him, thinking and even saying that he is mad. And the clever people and the theologians scoffed at what they considered to be his illiteracy. And the crowds came inquisitively to hear him preach and teach, but pretty soon all those crowds began to disappear. And the closest followers of this itinerant preacher threatened to leave him and caused him to ask, Will you also go away? And pretty soon they did desert him to his fate. He was reviled and executed, hanging between two thieves, and he was placed in a borrowed tomb. And then something strange began to happen. It was rumored that, he, that death did not finish him. It was reported that he had been seen with his disciples and soon they filled out into the streets and they began to proclaim with boldness that indeed Christ had risen from the dead. They said that this, uh, this itinerant carpenter's apprentice was now at the right hand of God. And they said what was partially obscure to them was now plain, that God had entered into Jesus' life in a unique way. They said that the eternal had become historic that the invisible had become visible, and that God had become man. They said He was a man. There are a lot of mysteries that surround this man, Jesus. There was the mystery of His, of his personality. 
He was so austere that even the demons and the spirits cried out in horror at His coming. And yet He was so tender and gentle and winsome that little children wanted to play with Him and little ones nestled in His lap. And His presence at the wedding in Cana was like a ray of sunshine. No one ever was more gentle and kind to sinners, and yet no one spoke more scorching words against sin. His whole life was lived in love. He was totally nonviolent. The Bible says that he would not break the bruised reed. And yet one time he said to Pharisees, How shall you think that you will escape the damnation of hell? As a servant, he bowed down and washed his disciples' feet, and yet masterfully he strode into the temple. And the hucksters and the gangsters fell over themselves in a mad rush to get away from the fire they saw flashing in his eyes. There was an enigma, there was a mystery about his personality. There was a mystery about his power. Ever since that day, he took that deadly cross and turned it into a throne. Empires have bowed to him. And because of his influence, great movements of reform have swept the earth. Emerson was masterfully correct when he said that the name of Jesus is not so much written as it is plowed into the history of the world. And Thomas Hardy, near the end of his dynast, has Napoleon say of Jesus, to shoulder him from the topmost niche of human fame, as I fondly felt, was not for me. And the one name before which... The anti-God movement of the world has trembled is the name of Jesus. There's a mystery in His power. So great was His power that this text says that He was the Word of life, that is. He could speak and life could begin. Life that was above the commonplace. Life that transcended mere existence. Who was this man Jesus, this man of power? I tell you, every virtue we possess... Every battle won, every thought of holiness is by the result of the might of the man, Jesus. But he was a man. You remember that this epistle of 1 John was written to combat Gnostic heresism, not the Gnostic heresy. And a part of that heresy was to deny the humanity of Jesus. But his humanity is unmistakable. He is authentic bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He has a face like every man. And the good news I declare to you is that the living, immortal, invisible God has come to earth in love to meet us at the level of our being and that He has worn our frame of dust and clay that we might wear His immortality. He was a man. But is that all? Thomas Carlyle was a stern, austere man, but a tender man, a sensitive man. So when death came into his family, somebody wrote, read from John's Gospel, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Carlyle interrupted him and said, If you're God, you have a right to say that. But if you're not, what do you know more than the rest of us? If he's just a man, what right does he have to make all these claims? If he's God, he has a right. He was a man the greatest man who's ever lived, a truth attested to by both friend and foe. But is that the final truth? This text thinks not. The text declares that this, this life that was handled with hands and seen with eyes and heard with ears, this life was eternal, that is. He came from God, the Scripture says. He was more than man. He was the eternal God-man, as much God as if he'd never been man. 
And in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. James Stewart has a marvelous little sermon on the signpost to his divinity. Let me suggest the five. First of all, we know he was more than man because he could do only what God could do. He actualized forgiveness. Only God could forgive sin. And yet Jesus forgave sin. And when he forgave sin, the sinner went away. And there was in the, in the deepest part of his being the awareness that he had been forgiven. And he went in the joy of it. Only God could open the gates of the kingdom of heaven. And yet for thousands, Jesus has opened those gates. And only God could redeem. And everyone knows that he is the great redeemer. Yea, even Jesus. So Nicodemus came to him one night. He said, we know that you're unusual and unique. Tell me how you get eternal life. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus said, well, how in the world is that possible to be born again? Well, he didn't have to look far. But below him were the disciples meeting in the room beneath where Jesus Nicodemus was standing. He could have asked them. Or he could have gone down to Jericho and interviewed Zacchaeus. Or he could have gone to Magdala and found the woman whose body had been sold as her stock and trade named Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. He could have asked her and they would have told that in Jesus Christ they found that God had entered life at the point of their need. And through Jesus Christ, God had made available a power that transforms life. He did only what God could do. Secondly, we know He's more than man because of His universality. He's touched the lives of millions of people on every continent. Matthew, the tax gatherer, and Luke, the physician, had absolutely nothing in common except that Jesus touched their lives, and after that, making Him known was all that mattered. Who else but Jesus could grip and captivate such men who have such utter differences as Luther, the reformer, and Loyola, the monk, as Francis of Assisi, and and Moody, the evangelist, as Cardinal Newman, the austere priest, and, and William Booth, the salvationist, only Jesus. I see his blood in every rose and in the stars the glory of his eyes. And um, I see the shining of his body in eternal snows and his teardrops fall from every sky. There's a third sign post along the way that shows that Jesus is more than man. That is the verification in our own conscience It doesn't take long when you begin to search for the historical Jesus that you discover that the historical Jesus is searching for you. Amen? It doesn't take long when you begin to deal with the historical Christ that you discover that the historical Christ is is dealing with you. It doesn't take long when you begin to find this man who walked by the Sea of Galilee that you discover that this man has been seeking to find you a verification in our own conscience. And so that dear nurse decided one day that it was time to bear witness to Helen Keller of Jesus Christ, this woman who could not read, who could not hear, who could not see. And yet they had developed a communication between them, did her nurse and Helen Keller. And she said, when I began to tell her about Jesus Christ, Helen's face lit up like the sun. And she said, in the communication between us, His name is Jesus. Oh, I know Him, she said. I have known Him all my life long. 
There is the fourth signpost along the way that Jesus is more than man. And that is because of the witness of the power that was in his life. The Bible says that he, that he was vindicated by the Spirit. That means that the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus vindicated that he was divine. And so Nicodemus said, you, We know that you're a man sent from God because no one could do these things except God be with him. And when John the Baptist asked for a reason to believe in Jesus, he said, You go back and tell John what you've seen, the witness of the power that's in my life. Luther was right when he said, We're undone if we cannot call this man God. Well, I suppose the fifth signpost is the most the most revealing or the most convincing, and that is that Jesus was sinless. He alone enjoyed the joy of a clear conscience. His whole life was spent in identification with a sinner, bringing the sinner to the mercy seat for forgiveness and for pardon, and yet there was not one time that he ever asked for forgiveness and for cleansing of sin for himself. How many lessons did he ever teach his disciples that you'd ask God for forgiveness every day? He taught us to pray like that. And yet not one time did he ever ask God for forgiveness. That's astounding when you consider that the closer a man is to God, the more aware he is of his own sin. The deeper, of, is a, the, deeper the consciousness of a man is of God, the deeper he is aware of his own need. You would think that because Jesus had this astounding relationship with God, that He above everyone else would cry out to God for forgiveness and for cleansing and for pardon. But there was no evidence of that. Turn to the 17th chapter of John sometime and read that high priestly prayer. He prayed knowing that He was soon to die. And there's not one word of remorse, not one word of repentance, not one word of confession, for Jesus in the deep of His own spirit knew He was without sin. That's what we proclaim. Now this message started out to be three points. I'm at point two now, but I'll just touch it and skip the last if you'll hang in there for about five more minutes. That's the reason of the proclamation. This is the relation of the proclamation. The relation of the proclamation we preach is what we have experienced. He said, this is what we proclaim, what our eyes have seen, what our hands have handled, what our ears have heard. With my own eyes, I looked into the eyes of Jesus, they said. With my own ears, I heard that voice that, made, that caused the birds to hush their singing. With our hands, we clasped the hand that was nailed to the cross. We have something to tell that we know from our own experience. As a matter of fact, that's all we have to tell. The only message I have a right to preach is that which I know for sure myself. That's what this epistle is saying. That's what this text is saying. We proclaim what we know for sure in our own experience. That's the only thing you have. It's what you know for sure. It's no second-hand religion. It's no hand-me-down faith. It's what you have that counts. A young man came to me one time, a student at Texas Tech University, he said, I got to college and I gave, I renounced my faith. He said, I gave up, I, I, I turned my back on everything that I had believed before. And I said, why'd you do that for? He said, well, when I got to Texas Tech, all those professors that didn't believe in God began to bombard me with all these questions and doubts. And he said, I discovered that everything I had was just something my parents had given me. He said, I didn't have any faith of my own. He said, I didn't have a relationship of, with, with God of my own. He said, everything I had was something that somebody just told me about. He said, I didn't have any experience with God. He said, I didn't have any faith that was mine. No wonder he gave it up so easy. 
or when it's something just handed down, it's unreal. You can say the words all day long. You can sing the songs all day long. You can, you can pray the prayers all day long. But if it's somebody else's words and somebody else's prayer, while you're saying them, they just don't ring true and you know it. And if it's what somebody else has handed down to you, if it's a second-hand religion, it's incomplete. You watch people and you look at them and you see the joy that's in their life and you say, why don't I have that? And you see people who are living triumphantly over sin and you know that you're not and you know that something's lacking in your life. I'm speaking to people today who have claimed to be Christians who are members of churches and yet they don't have what others have because they've never walked with God. They've never really genuinely known Him. It's incomplete. Thomas Hardy was walking one night out in the evening. He was full of despair. It was winter time. And the surrounding, the environment, the countryside was bleak and dark and dismal, as dismal and dark and bleak as the condition of his own soul. And he was full of despair, despondency. As he walked along there, he said, a thrush in a, in a tree began to sing. Thomas Hardy went home and penned these lines. There must have trembled through his happy goodnight air, a blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. And I've seen people come into church and there's the light of glory in the face of these people. And they know the Lord and they walk with God and I see them. And I remember as a kid joining the church and I would see that look and I would see that joy and I would experience that victory in the lives of others. But I had none myself. And so I came to the Lord, came to myself, came to the realization that they had something I didn't have. They had the Lord. It's incomplete and it's insecure. It's insecure. When you stand before God, my friend, you better have a faith that's more than just the faith of your father. When you stand before God, you better have a, you better have a conviction that's deeper than the conviction of the next door neighbor. This is what John Wesley confessed. He was a missionary to Georgia on the way home on a ship. They got into a storm, and he was scared to death. The only people on that ship who were not afraid were a bunch of Moravian Christians. And John Wesley went up to them and said, Aren't you afraid? And they said, Why, are we afraid? Why would we, should we be afraid? We know Christ. Then they looked at John Wesley, and they said, Don't you know Christ? And John Wesley went back. And in the Alders Great Gate experience, this missionary, this religious authority, this missionary found Christ for the first time. Listen that I'm through. I was reading somewhere the other day. Bennett Cerf was telling about a young girl who was just incorrigible. She was unruly and unmanageable. And she'd been in two institutions and they couldn't do anything with her, and so they shipped her off, and she was in an orphanage in Pennsylvania. True story. She was shy and unattractive. Her friends didn't, her, her, her associates didn't like her. She had no friends. The teachers couldn't get along with her, couldn't manage her, couldn't do anything with her. And they had a rule in this orphanage that you couldn't write a letter to anybody unless it was censored, read by the people at the, or the director, the officials at the orphanage. One day they saw her with a little note in her hand. And she went down the road to the corner of the, of the grounds of the orphanage. 
And there was this high wall and huge gate, off limits. She climbed up in this tree and she left this note, hung out over the gate, surrounded the orphanage ground. And she went back. The officials traced her steps, went down there. They were watching. They let her go. They went down there, got up in the tree, got the letter, tore it open. One of the social workers couldn't read it. She was over, overcome with emotion. She couldn't read it. She handed it to the director. He read it aloud. Whoever finds this, I love you. You come with me this morning to a manger. And you come with me to a cross. And you discover a word from God. Whoever finds this, I love you. And that's the best news you'll hear today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the footfall of the eternal, immortal, invisible God upon the sand of this world. Man coming to man. God coming to earth. And because of him, his personality and his power, we are no longer the same. We thank you that we have the evidence that we were visited by a God who created us, who has chosen that having come, he would never leave. It saddens our heart today to know that men know about him but don't know him. They have a handed down faith that's been given to them by their parents or some Sunday school teacher. It thrills us to know that we can know Him. We can have Him to abide in us, to live with us and within us. And I pray that we shall. There are some this morning, Heavenly Father, who need to make those decisions that would enable them to know the Lord, to walk with Him, to be forgiven, to be made brand new. I pray that those decisions shall be made this place today in Jesus name now look this way here we go the same decisions that we ask you to make every Sunday some of you have not yet made them the first thing we'll ask you of you if you're not a Christian is to come and know Jesus Christ I tell you he can he is alive in in this room this very room the person of the Holy Spirit the other Jesus he comes to live in your heart I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat come and give your life to Jesus Christ to know Christ you talk to Lee or to Sam these men will help you to know the Lord you just step out in that aisle as a step of faith as a step of commitment to say I want to come to know Jesus Christ I want him to be my savior I've never been saved oh I've had handed down religion but I've never had first hand experience I want to know Christ as my savior I want you to come this morning on the first word Second invitation, these are simultaneously extended for you to come and place your life in the church. Surely in this large auditorium, large congregation, there are many of us who, who need to make those steps of commitment that would mean church membership and church involvement and fellowship. Or you'll need to come today to say, I'm a Christian, but I've not been walking with Christ. He's just been kind of a figure that's somewhere off in the distance. 
I want to get to know Him better. I want to rededicate myself and begin a pilgrimage to fullness and to victory. We're going to do it this morning. I just sense it. I know that God is going to lead you to do it. You'll be ready to do it when we sing a very first stanza, a very first word. You come while we stand. Let's do it.